and welcome. It's been so long. How have you been? This is Space Mummies from Planet X, a podcast about all things sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. And I'm your host, Devin C. Larson, you know, in case you forgot. I hope you've all been having a lovely fall. This episode is coming out right after Thanksgiving and just prior to the utter madness of the holiday Christmas season. I've recently just come off of a week of being sick, so if you can hear my voice going, that's why. My new job, by the way, is going great. Lots of fantastic developments in my personal life that are nonetheless keeping me busy, busy, busy. Remember, as always, to keep an eye on the YouTube channel. A couple weeks ago, I posted a tutorial video on how to use your imagination to visualize when you're performing voiceover in order to achieve a better performance. There's a new video coming out in a week or thereabouts, so make sure you're subscribed with notifications turned on. Since the last time, I've been watching... Hmm. What have I been watching? Walking Dead, obviously. I also saw Black Panther Wakanda Forever, which, if you haven't seen it yet, go see it. It stars Letitia Wright, Lupita Nyong'o, Denai Guerrera, Winston Duke, the incomparable Angela Bassett, Tanak Huerta, Martin Freeman, and Dominique Thorne, among many others. It takes place after the untimely and tragic passing of Chadwick Boseman a few years ago and manages to do his memory justice. Bozeman was such a gifted actor, and his portrayal of T'Challa was iconic, so it's reasonable to wonder how to follow that up with a new Black Panther film. Luckily, the movie doesn't try to replace him in the slightest. It's a very moving and very long examination of loss, and the ways that we can choose to react to that loss in both positive and negative ways. It's a breakout performance for Letitia Wright, who plays T'Challa's younger sister Shuri a brilliant scientist that doesn't know how to process her grief following the loss of her brother. Since that's happened, Wakanda has carried on and held fast against incursions by the outside world that are desperately wanting access to the nation's stockpile of vibranium, that mythical, powerful metal. When a new source is discovered on the ocean floor, it reveals the existence of Talokan and the underwater Atlantean-like people that live there. Talokan and Wakanda are drawn into conflict with one another, pitting the Mer-people's ruler Namor against Shuri and... Well, I don't want to spoil it for you, so just go see it for yourself if you haven't already. The cultural attention to detail in the costuming and design for both people remains impressive, and I think the choice to make the Mer-people Mayan was a great decision. More variety for Marvel is always a good thing. I've also been catching up on the HBO Max show Titans, which continues to be great. I stumbled on this back during the first season years ago and was instantly hooked. All the HBO Max stuff like this, Doom Patrol and Swamp Thing, seriously, if you haven't seen Swamp Thing, go see it, has been the best of the live-action DC initiatives, way better than any of the movies. Anyway, that's a little bit of what I've been seeing lately. I'm still playing Octopath. I'll talk more about that on the actual episode that I do on that in the future. Back to the main agenda for this episode. The Walking Dead. As I'm recording this, The Walking Dead has just a week ago ended its 12-year run on AMC, so it seemed like the perfect time to take a look back and consider, what did we all just watch? (laughs) What does it all mean? And where do we go from here? Because, make no mistake, this isn't over. (laughs) Before we get to any of that, this is the first time I brought up the topic of zombies on the podcast, so... I'd like to get into some history. You might be inclined to think that the concept of zombies is a relatively modern thing, but it's actually been around for a while. The term zombie 
comes from Haitian folklore with roots in Haitian Creole and West African traditions. It describes a mystical undead corpse specifically resurrected by a voodoo sorcerer called a bokor. The zombie has no mind of its own and is enslaved to the will of the sorcerer who resurrected it. In fact, slavery is a pretty key component of the zombie myth. The core concept is believed to have first originated in West Africa and was brought to Haiti by enslaved people where it took root among the violence and misery of that colony. Death was, for many, the only means of escape. The term zombie then made its way to the United States, chiefly among the enslaved populace of the South. The writer William Seabrook released a book called The Magic Island in 1929, where he recounted his observations of Haiti and the voodoo cults, as well as detailing the idea of the zombie to the U.S. audience writ large. Many believe his book to be the basis of the 1932 horror film White Zombie, the first instance of zombies on screen. That film is about a Haitian plantation owner who lures a young couple to his plantation where they plan to marry. In reality, the plantation owner intends to seduce the woman, Madeline, by means of a zombie potion given to him by a local Creole mill owner who's played by Bella Lugosi. In 1943, the film I Walked with a Zombie featured a Canadian nurse traveling to a fictional Caribbean island to cure a patient exhibiting zombie-like behavior, which she then attempts to cure with voodoo. And then this brings us to the landmark film of the genre, if zombies can be considered a genre, which is, of course, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead in 1968, which I'll get to in a second. But I think it's worth it to pause here for a second and consider what the zombie concept represents thematically. Zombies, and the core concept of the zombie outbreak, stand in for a number of societal tensions and fears. On the face of it, zombies represent our fears about death and the spread of disease, pretty straightforward given that in most instances, the zombie outbreak is caused and communicated through a literal virus, it's not hard to understand the relationship there. Zombies also pretty clearly represent generalized fears of each other, of people in groups, and of people different from ourselves. More on that last point in a bit. Another one of the themes is the end and breakdown of society, fears about the precarity of our current lives in the material sense, the potential loss or limitation of resources and the conditions that we might have to endure if society went away. There's also, naturally, anxiety about the future, fear of the unknown. Dawn of the Dead, um, the one that's set in the mall, that's also used in the setting of the zombie apocalypse to parody consumerism and make the analogy that capitalism has driven us all to become mindless, well, zombies. Anyway, back to Night of the Living Dead. So, Night of the Living Dead really bought, brought zombies into mainstream popular culture. Everything about modern zombie movies, shows, comics, it all goes back to this. It was directed by George A. Romero. Uh, born in the Bronx in the 1940s, he was the son of a commercial artist and was obsessed with film as a child. He's described as having frequently taken trips into Manhattan on the subway in order to rent film reels, which he would then take home and watch. He graduated from Carnegie Mellon University and then started shooting short films and TV commercials. If you can believe it, his very first movie was Night of the Living Dead. If you're unfamiliar with the movie, for some reason. It's about an apocalypse where the dead, never actually referred to as zombies in the movie, um, they're called ghouls instead, 
they start mindlessly attacking the living. It focuses on a group of survivors that end up taking shelter from the dead in a farmhouse and how internal suspicions and tensions tear them apart from within while the dead attack from without. It's noteworthy for the time that the leader of the group and the most competent member of the survivors by far is an African-American man. This led to many people assuming that the film was an allegory for the civil rights movement, although Romero always insisted that this was unintentional. He cast Dwayne Johnson as the lead because he was simply the best actor. A further unintentional parallel is that at the end of that movie, protagonist Ben is shot and killed. MLK was assassinated following the completion of the film. Throughout Night of the Living Dead, as well as its two sequels, Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead, Romero helped establish the quote-unquote rules of the zombie outbreak. So the initial phase of the outbreak involves isolated and traumatic attacks by the dead. The public is shocked, panicked, and often in denial, which then leads to a slow and inadequate response that only serves to cause the contagion to spread. Then, at a certain point, the outbreak overwhelms the government's ability to respond to it, and society just breaks down. Mass death ensues, and the survivors are forced to group together in makeshift units that then compete with other groups for resources. Then supplies dwindle, and the groups turn on themselves. The ones that are the least resistant start to experience mental breakdowns that usually result in their deaths. Eventually, one such breakdown inevitably results in the compromise of the group's security, and then the dead swarm in, leading to the group's either destruction or dissolution. Anyway, that's how things typically played themselves out. As for the zombies themselves, they have greater than normal strength, which will allow them to tear people open with their bare hands, those wonderful uh, scenes of just dismemberment. They're immune to almost all forms of damage. At worst, all that happens is a limitation of mobility, with the exception of damage to the brain. Kill the brain, you kill the zombie. The virus spreads through the zombie breaking the skin of the non-infected person, either through scratches or usually a bite. The infected person grows ill, dies, and then comes back to life. Another core tenet of the zombie outbreak is how people are the real danger. Zombies are manageable, except in great numbers, but other survivors, they can think, and they represent a lethal threat without the rules of society keeping them in check. Throughout the 90s and into the aughts, zombie media exploded in popularity. There were further of-the-dead movies, as well as remakes of earlier entries. Resident Evil, which you may remember from previous episodes, came out in 1996 and popularized zombies in video games before uh, having a billion sequels and becoming a movie franchise with a billion sequels. Uh, seriously, go re-listen to the Resident Evil 7 episode for more on that. All of this inspired further movies and video games like Army of Darkness, House of the Dead, parody films like Return of the Living Dead and Shaun of the Dead, as well as decidedly B-movie-level stuff. Actually, why don't we at this point run down a list of some of the best bits of zombie media up to this point? The original Living Dead movies, obviously, particularly Night and Dawn, Return of the Living Dead, Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness, the games Resident Evil 1 and 2, the video game House of the Dead 2, Shaun of the Dead, 28 Days Later, the video game uh, Zombies Ate My Neighbors, and if you've never heard of it, do yourself a favor and look into it. I love that game for the Super Nintendo. And then also the board game Zombies with three exclamation marks. Assuming that board games count as media, I don't know. 
Arguably, though, by this point, and we're talking the early aughts now, the whole zombie concept was getting a bit oversaturated? Stale? I don't know. There went from being only a few zombie things in the late 60s, early 70s, to so many zombie things. So many. So naturally, this guy named Robert Kirkman decided that this was the perfect time to start a zombie epic in comic form that would later come to define the modern-day zombie story, The Walking Dead. Robert Kirkman is a comic book writer and TV producer most famous for The Walking Dead, though he's also created Invincible, Outcast, uh, this thing called Battle Pope. He also wrote for a number of Marvel comics. He was born in 1978 in Kentucky and grew up on the same zombie stuff that I just talked about, particularly Night of the Living Dead and Resident Evil. He started writing comics in 2000 with Battle Pope, co-created with Tony Moore, the artist that helped him launch the Walking Dead comic, which is like a parody superhero comic. His next major series was Invincible in 2003, the same year that he created The Walking Dead, a coming-of-age superhero story co-created with Cory Walker, also illustrated by Ryan Otley, that ran for 144 issues, spawned a number of spinoffs, was adapted itself as an animated TV show, It's highly regarded and probably deserves a separate podcast to itself. As I mentioned, Kirkman was a fan of Night of the Living Dead. He discovered it as a kid, was instantly obsessed, and watched the sequels, loved all of it. Around the same time that he was developing the idea behind Invincible, he was also working on a concept for Image Comics, which is the publisher of both Invincible and The Walking Dead, about a zombie outbreak that followed the extended story of survivors caught in its midst. Originally, the plan was to do a direct sequel to Night of the Living Dead, set during the 1960s in the same world that Romero had created, but Image co-founder Jim Valentino suggested that the concept be tweaked a little bit so that it could be an original property that the creators could just own outright. So Kirkman developed a new pitch for a more traditional zombie survival story, and it was rejected for being too normal, apparently. So to get around this, Kirkman reworked the pitch again to include aliens so that the virus creating the zombie outbreak was part of an invasion plot. To be clear, he had no intention of incorporating aliens into the story. This was merely, in his estimation, a necessary deception to get the story approved. As for the art, Kirkman tapped Battle Pope collaborator Tony Moore to be the sole artist. Around six issues in, he was replaced by Charlie Adlard for the duration of the comic's 193-issue run. Unlike most American comic books, all the artwork was in black and white. This was for two reasons. One, stylistically this matched classic horror movies including Night of the Living Dead. And two, it was necessary for a single artist to be able to handle all of the art by themselves on a monthly release schedule. Image began publishing the series in 2003, and the rest was history. So, I'll be addressing aspects of the story at length, but first... In case you've been living under a rock for the last two decades, here's what The Walking Dead is about. The story follows a former cop, Rick Grimes, in the months and years following the outbreak of a zombie apocalypse. Crucially, nobody in this world has ever heard of zombies or knows the rules for dealing with them, otherwise it'd be a short story. It follows him as he finds his family, joins a makeshift band of survivors that over time gains and loses members, and tries to endure attacks by the dead, rationing, lack of resources, disease, and the danger posed by other people, both without the group and within. Over time, they establish the rudiments of a new society, while we, the audience, 
are given glimpses of the different and disastrous ways other people have attempted to survive in the aftermath of civilization. The whole idea, as Kirkman explained in the first collected volume of the comic, is what would happen in a typical zombie movie if we could see past the end of the movie after the cameras would normally be shut off? How would those people then change over time? How would we, the audience, be affected by growing attached to various characters that could then meet their end at any time? How would the dramatic tension shift and change? That scope of story hadn't been attempted before in an intense story like this. And like with any good apocalypse story, it begs the question, how would we behave? In the absence of laws and norms, what would we become? The story goes through several phases or arcs. It starts off with Rick waking up in a hospital bed, nearly identical to the start of 28 Days Later, by the way, and discovers that during his coma, the world ended. He follows the trail of his family and meets back up with them again outside of Atlanta, along with the group that they're traveling with. Rick's former partner Shane turns on him, leading to Rick's son Carl shooting Shane, before Rick leads the group to a nearby housing development. This quickly ends in disaster, and Carl is wounded, so the survivors are forced to take shelter on a farm. This puts Rick's group into an uneasy relationship with the farm's residents, and eventually they are forced out, back on the road, where they eventually come across a prison. Rick's group then clears out the prison of walkers, uh, one of the terms for zombies, and discovers that there's still a few inmates trapped in there that are alive. Incorporating them into the group proves disastrous and lethal. In fact, everything proves lethal throughout the comic, actually. During this period, Rick's group discovers that there's a nearby town, Woodbury, run by a man calling himself the Governor. When Rick and some other people approach Woodbury looking to make contact, the Governor acts friendly and then cuts off Rick's hand and imprisons another member, Michonne. Uh, She's abused in horrific ways before they are all able to escape back to the prison. The Governor in the process is wounded and, after months of quiet, launches a full-scale attack on the prison with a tank. A lot of key characters, including the governor, are killed, and then the survivors scatter to the winds. After some difficulty, the group is able to meet up once again on the road, where they find themselves hunted by a group of cannibals that want to capture and eat them, but manage to turn the tables on their pursuers and murder the cannibals first. After further time spent on the road, the group is approached by a scout for a community, Alexandria, that looks exactly like a small town before the apocalypse. Rick's group is brought into the community, where various members of Rick's group clash with the Alexandrians right before a massive horde of walkers swarms the town, killing many. In the aftermath, Rick and his people control Alexandria. They come into contact with representatives of other communities, namely Hilltop and the Kingdom, The new communities appear friendly, but require something of Rick's group in exchange. They need Rick to help them get rid of the area of another hostile group led by a man named Negan. Ah yes, Negan. He presents a show of force to Rick's group by smashing Glenn's skull in, he's a member of Rick's group from, like, the beginning, and puts Alexandria under his thumb. He extorts the Alexandrians for supplies in exchange for protection, but this uneasy balance doesn't last long, and all four communities, Alexandria, Hilltop, the Kingdom, and Negan's group, the Saviors, all go to war. The Allied communities versus the Saviors. It's violent and grim, but eventually the Allied communities prevail. After then a several-year time jump, we're reintroduced to a flourishing Alexandria. These seem to have all um, gotten their shit together, more or less. Then the communities allied with Rick encounter a new group that cover themselves in the skin of the dead and travel among them, whispering. 
things come to a head when the Whisperers kill a number of citizens of the Allied communities in exchange for a border transgression, and that action sparks a new conflict between the Whisperers and the Allied communities. The Allies prevail after suffering heavy losses. It's at this point that the story moves into its final arc. The Allies are contacted by a massive community, the Commonwealth, several times their size, who have restarted civilization and reasserted the old power structures built on hierarchy and class. Rick and his people are allowed in. Um, There's some brief tension based around the fact that Alexandria is essentially a commune without special privileges like the Commonwealth. Then, infighting erupts as the security force of the Commonwealth attempts to overthrow the government. Rick and his people get caught up in it, just as another massive horde of zombies hits the community. They prevail against the dead and discuss a new way of structuring power in the Commonwealth, something that deposes the current mayor. In retaliation for this, her son sneaks into Rick's room at night and shoots him. Carl finds him dead the next morning, another one of the walking dead, and puts him down. There's then another time jump, and we're shown Carl as an adult and what the Commonwealth has become, which is essentially a new United States, as a nice little kind of story coda. You still with me? A lot happens. A lot of people die. The audience is made to care about so many characters that meet brutal, violent deaths. So Kirkman gets so many things right about what a great zombie movie slash comic should be. It follows all of the rules of the Romero films. In fact, the reason that the comic is so good, the reason that it's become the colossal franchise that it is, is because the focus is always kept squarely on the relationship between the characters and the conflicts between them, not the zombies. They're almost part of the scenery, really. Uh, the backdrop for the actual human drama that unfolds. Crucially, Kirkman never attempts to explain why any of the zombie stuff is happening, to his credit, because ultimately it doesn't matter. What could be more dramatic than whether a beloved character lives or dies? It's simple, and it works. You never know who could die next. I think the way that the comic portrays escalating social conflicts between individuals, communities, and classes is an insightful dissection of the layers of tension that exist in actual society. And as for the ending of the comic, I thought it was perfect. Rick getting shot felt exactly like the end of Night of the Living Dead, and I think that was maybe intentional. If I had to leverage a criticism of the comic, I would say that at points some of the violence can get pretty extreme. To be clear, I'm not at all opposed to violent content, and most of it does make sense, but it does get to be overkill at one or two points. For instance, the stuff that happens with the governor and Michonne didn't really need to happen. It felt indulgent rather than something that served to advance the story, in my opinion. I shouldn't really need to say this, but uh, the comic was a massive hit. It ran from 2003 to 2019 and won the Eisner Award twice for Best Continuing Series. People were naturally divided on the way that it ended, but that's to be expected if you kill off your main character. And of course, it was adapted into a live-action TV show. So, let's talk about that show. Writer, director, producer Frank Darabont, director of uh, The Shawshank Redemption, among other things, approached Kirkman with the idea of adapting The Walking Dead into a TV series. He pitched it to several networks, finally landing on AMC. The process of getting the show to this point reportedly took around five years. AMC ordered the pilot, which tested well, and followed that up with an initial season consisting of six episodes. The casting for The Walking Dead was perfect. Uh, There are a lot of characters, so many, so here's just a a taste of the main cast. 
you have Andrew Lincoln as Rick Grimes, Chandler Riggs as Carl, Sarah Wayne Collies as Lori, John Bernthal as Shane, Steve Yun as Glenn, Melissa McBride as Carol, Denai Guerrera as Michonne, Lauren Cohen as Maggie, Norman Reedus as Daryl Dixon, Jeffrey Dean Morgan as Negan. There are too many to go through. Josh McDermott as Eugene. I can't mention them all. It's such an amazing cast. Great acting throughout. Some, like Andrew Lincoln and Norman Reedus and Jeffrey Dean Morgan, came to the project as known actors already, and so uh, so many more grew famous thanks to their work on the show. For instance, consider how Denai Guerrero's career has taken off. Frank Darabont was the showrunner for the first season and wrote four of the six episodes. They turned out great. The show mainly followed the events of the comic with some key differences, which I'll get into shortly. Everything about the makeup, the costuming, set design, was an achievement, and remained so throughout the entire run of the show. There are a number of moments in that pilot that are panels of the comic brought to life, essentially. The first season tracks Rick's journey to Atlanta, the reunion with his family and former partner Shane, the introduction and erosion of the initial group of survivors, along with uh, it's got a side plot where they explore the city trying to track down some missing weapons, before ultimately ending at a CDC building where they learn how hopeless the world situation has become. The cast was mostly adapted from the comic, with some notable exceptions. T-Dog and the Dixon brothers, Merle and Daryl. Shocking, considering how popular and enduring Daryl became to the show. I know. Uh, Other changes include, Shane survived past the group's departure from the Atlanta outskirts, and then the whole CDC thing to put some kind of a bow on the end of the first season, I guess. It was an impressive first season, if abbreviated, and clearly a big hit for AMC, but... Reportedly, the budget was a sore spot for the network, which makes sense considering the amount of extras and on-location filming that was necessary to bring the comic to life. The show throughout its run was filmed in and around Atlanta. They used the town Sonoya for a number of locations, including Woodsbury and Alexandria, and their primary studio for shooting interior scenes was located there as well, Riverwood Studios. But much of season one was shot in the city proper, which probably wasn't cheap. Reportedly, the budget for the episodes of the first season were around $3.4 million, and though that amount would stabilize to around $3 million per episode for the duration, it must have been more than the network wanted to pay in the beginning. Or so the story goes. Because after the first season, the network fired Frank Darbont, supposedly over budgetary concerns. Episodes in season two would run a bit cheaper, relatively, at $2.75 million. Other reasons given for the firing were Darabont's inexperience as a showrunner and his lack of planning, but just go back and watch that first season and judge for yourself. I don't buy it, honestly. The firing apparently came as a shock to many people, including much of the cast. Uh, Which brings us to season two, perhaps the lowest point of the entire run. You see, what makes season two so disappointing is that the scope of the show got scaled back in a sudden way. Part of it, obviously, is the budget cuts, confining the second season to one location, Herschel's farm and a couple of the immediately adjacent areas, after the variety of locations in season one, hurt. But the writing took an undeniable hit in quality, possibly because Darabont wasn't in the picture, I don't know. Characters started acting stupidly, picking fights and having moral qualms over doing things that didn't make sense or track from season one. At the beginning of the season, Carl gets shot, by mistake, 
and their group takes shelter at the farm. Uh, all this happens in the comics as well. But there was really only enough storyline material there to fill, like, three episodes? And season two tried to stretch it over 13. The pacing was a mess. The show made some other major divergences with character deaths at this point, too. For instance, Carol's daughter, Sophia, being the main one, uh, she never dies in the comic, and the premature death of Dale, who originally survived for quite a while. Incidentally, Jeffrey DeMunn, who played Dale, was a frequent collaborator with Darabont prior to The Walking Dead, and considering the way that Darabont's departure went down, I'm wondering if he has to be written off the show early. I don't know, I'm just wondering. Not all of it was bad, though. The Shane storyline reached its conclusion as he inevitably turns on Rick and attempts to kill him before being shot by Carl. The show gave this element of the story more room to breathe, and Bernthal is such a good actor that when things reach the breaking point, it works. Starting with Season 3, things started to pick up. For one thing, it's adapting the main part of the prison Woodbury arc from the comic, which is just a more compelling, interesting part of the story. We're introduced to the first major villain of the show, The Governor, played by David Morrissey. It's also when Michonne, Denai Guerrera, is added to the cast. Having a home base and the looming threat of an external enemy keeps the focus where it should be, while the human drama within the group. There are some weird, abrupt de character departures, uh, so long glory, and the return of Merle. Hooray! Michael Rooker is such a good actor. The story follows the flow of the comic, more or less, but makes some changes. For example, the stuff with Andrea getting romantically involved with the governor. In the show, Rick never loses his hand, although I think they tried to replicate this with other characters a couple times throughout the show, uh, Merle and then later Aaron. If I remember correctly, Rick is also processing feelings of grief during a lot of this uh, over the death of Lori and starts imagining he hears a voice calling him on a phone, which happens later on in the comic. Also, crucially, Andrea dies. What the heck? <laughs> Andrea in general was cast and written just all wrong for the show, start to finish. It probably wasn't super clear how important a character she would end up being for the comic version, but here she was kind of wasted. At the end of Season 3, Glenn Mazzara, who took over from Frank Darabont as showrunner in Season 2, leaves the show over a difference of opinion with AMC over the show's direction, it's kind of a mess with showrunners on this thing. Season 4 then follows, bringing a conclusion to the prisoner-governor arc. The prison deals with a mysterious illness, and the governor marshals his forces to attack the prison. Most of the major character deaths happen, like in the comic, sometimes transposed a little bit onto different characters. For instance, Herschel gets beheaded instead of Tyrese in the comics. Carol, though, never dies. Ever. She develops into quite the interesting character over the years, R really goes on a journey of self-actualization from her humble beginnings as an abused housewife to this uber-resourceful fighter. I can't really begrudge the show for this. Ultimately, the governor attacks the prison, and a number of people die, the dead swarm in, and the group scatters, once again. Which leads to one of my personal high moments of the show. This would be around the beginning of season 5, I think. All of the surviving members of Rick's group get lured to this train switching station called Terminus that's actually run by a community of cannibals. After being corralled in a boxcar, several members of the group, Rick, Glenn, Daryl, are nearly bled out before a trough like livestock, and it falls to Carol's ingenuity to rescue them all. It's a really tense moment for the show. Uh, moving right along. 
There's so much to summarize and discuss that I need to get through this a little faster. The group hits the road, meets Abraham, Rosita, Eugene, and Gabriel, traps and kills the tournamentist cannibals which follow them, gets scouted by Aaron on behalf of Alexandria. Also in there, someplace, Maggie's sister Beth gets abducted by some psychos in a hospital and dies. Whatever. The show really finds its legs again after the group gets to Alexandria, though. I think having a home base uh, slash territory to protect provides clearer stakes and the opportunity to contrast how much Rick's group has changed relative to the Alexandrians living in their bubble. It's illuminating. The show gender flips the original mayor of Alexandria, Deanna, who I'm pretty sure is Douglas in the comic. I'm not sure why, but it's a notable difference. I looked into it, and Tova Feldsha, who plays Deanna, modeled her interpretation of the role after Hillary Clinton. Rick becomes the sheriff, almost immediately starts friction with Deanna, and some of the residents, uh, over lack of solid defenses against the zombie horde, also that nobody there seems opposed to ongoing domestic abuse. He's proven right about the horde when the walls get breached and the dead swarm into the town. The cosseted natives hide indoors while the seasoned fighters in Rick's group start clearing the zombies through violence and just sheer force of will. Carl's eye gets shot out, which does happen in the comic and remains a shocking moment in the story. Deanna dies, and then Rick assumes control of Alexandria. The whole thing represents a significant trial by fire for Rick's group. The lesson to take from it seems to be that surviving out in the real world prepared them to respond quickly to a disaster, even if that time on the road almost made them lose touch with their own humanity. After the No Way Out arc, uh, where the zombies swarm Alexandria, the show follows the comic storyline with some additional material here and there. Alexandria makes contact with both the hilltop and the kingdom, both of which look identical here to their comic counterparts. It's amazing. Then the rumors and whispers about Negan start, and I think it's here where the show adds to what the comic was able to accomplish. The show takes its time foreshadowing Negan and the saviors. The initial representatives that Rick's group encounter are weak and easily dispatched, which gives them this false sense of their own strength. We start seeing Polaroids of previous victims of Negan with smashed skull, significance which is lost on the characters, but not on us, the audience, if we know anything about the comic. There's also this theme that I think the, show's ex- the show explores during this period relating to morality. Are Rick's group actually good people, or do we think they are because we only see their point of view? After all, Hilltop hires Alexandria, not unlike mercenaries, to kill the saviors without provocation. It's not the first or only time that the show approaches this question to its credit. Possibly my favorite moment of the show happens around this time, an episode where Rick's group strikes first against a savior outpost. There's no real warning. Rick and his crew ambush them and sneak through the facility, assassinating many of the survivors while they sleep. It's brutal, and I like it because it's an action that seems to clearly cross a moral line. Rick's group are the bad guys, and many of them, like Glenn, see what they've become for the first time. It also gives Negan the pretext for striking them back the way he does. The entire thing is an invention of the show, but from a storytelling perspective, I think it makes the narrative stronger. All of which leads us to the introduction of Jeffrey Dean Morgan as Negan. Negan appears roughly halfway through the comic, and is easily the best villain. Morgan is the perfect casting choice. He's charismatic and funny in a frequently juvenile way, even without the benefit of uh, the character's absurd F-bomb usage in the comic. Morgan is magnetic on screen, 
and an immediate threat even before he smashes Glenn's head in, and Abraham's, a departure from the comic. The show did this agonizing cliffhanger thing, by the way, between seasons, where they kept the audience guessing as to who died. It was so cruel. So after this, the show follows the domination of the Allied communities by the Saviors for about a season, leading up to the all-out war arc from the comics. A number of character deaths get swapped around, and the show diverges sharply at points from the comic storyline. For instance, Rick and Michonne fall in love. It's a pairing that works, uh, due in no small part to Andrew Lincoln and Denai Guerrera's chemistry. In the comic, if you know anything about it, Rick ends up with Andrea, which is a ship that sailed seasons ago, obviously. Other changes include Sasha's assassination mission, which she's not even a character in the comic, uh, the brilliant casting of Stephen Ogg as Simon, Negan's right-hand man. Negan's lieutenants don't get much of a spotlight in the comic aside from Dwight, so having other compelling villains keeps the whole operation from feeling like a one-man show quite so much. Another change is when Negan kidnaps Eugene and forces him to make bullets. This puts Eugene's brilliance to work for the saviors instead of Alexandria like in the original storyline. Everything to do with the Junkard community, by the way, the, the one with the Jadis, was invented for the show. And honestly, aside from some fun makeup special effects, I think it was at this point where I became really impressed with how inventive the makeup was getting for the zombies. There were also some action set pieces. I don't think the Junkyard added much of anything to the story. Felt a little like padding. And then significantly, there's the death of Carl. I'm honestly still shocked that they did this, but I think over the eight seasons, Chandler Riggs had grown too much in real time to plausibly be a young child like the story required. It's not at all clear why they wrote the character off. The only real explanation that was given is that it was necessary for Rick's character development. Believe that as you will. I think Riggs was a good actor presence on the show, or at least he developed into one by that point, so kind of felt to me like a waste to get rid of him, but Supposedly, Rick needed that event to decide to spare Negan at the conclusion of the war. I don't know that I buy it, but it gave Rick a compelling reason to go through another cycle of grief on camera, which I guess adds to the dramatic tension. The rest of the story throughout this period more or less follows the comic. Rick and crew prevail, Negan is defeated, and peace arrives for a few short years. Also, Morgan takes off to join Fear the Walking Dead. Next, like in the comic, there's a several-year time jump leading into the Whisperer's arc of the story. Two of them, actually. It's fascinating to see that the passage of time does to uh, the set design and the characters' appearances. We get a good look at old man Rick and his beard, still bearing the injuries of his fight with Negan months or years earlier. So the first half of Season 9 concerns itself with Rick attempting to lead the different communities which includes the saviors now, into a mutual construction project to try and rebuild a bridge and trust between the different factions. Inevitably, it falls apart. The communities isolate, and Rick dies. It actually, he doesn't. But Andrew Lincoln does leave the show at this point. It's such a weird, abrupt exit that casts the show adrift, in my opinion, seeing as The Walking Dead is kind of a one-man story about Rick Grimes. No Rick, no cohesion, just a rotating cast of leads in search of a through line. When Rick dies in the comic at the end, it brings the story to a natural conclusion and it feels earned. It makes no narrative sense the way that they do the exit in the show. It says nothing. It makes no statement. 
Apparently, from reporting, Andrew Lincoln wanted off the show because he was missing the chance to watch his children grow up back in England because he was off filming in Georgia for most of the year. And I do respect that. All I'm saying is that they wrote him off in a weird way. Following Rick's departure was the Whisperer's arc, where the story kept slipping a bit. They didn't really dwell on the horrifying implications of the dead learning to speak, quote-unquote, for all that long, even though that's not actually what's happening. It is interesting, though, because they unexpectedly return to this idea of the zombies evolving into climbers uh, right before the end of the series. It's kind of weird. They killed off Jesus, reportedly after Tom Paine was sick of the role, so maybe it was a mutually agreed-upon decision amongst all the parties involved. And Maggie left off-screen. Lauren Cohen's contract was up, and they couldn't come to terms. She left to go star in this show called Whiskey Cavalier that lasted about a season, and then returned to The Walking Dead for its final season. So, the main villain, Alpha, played by Samantha Morton, so she's the main villain of this arc. She demonstrates a presence and a ferocity that makes the achievements of the Allied group seem just fragile and weak. Her whole deal involves rejecting the entire idea of civilization as being inferior to nature and chaos. Because the show saw fit to kill off Carl, uh, several new characters would then have to fill in the Carl role of the story during this phase. Judith, now older, and remember, this character dies as an infant in the comic, serves as one aspect of Carl, the sort of narrator witnessing events and possessed of a wisdom beyond her years. The other aspect is Henry, another invention of the show, that draws the allied communities into conflict with the Whispers due to his involvement with Alpha's daughter, Lydia. At the outset of this arc, the different communities remain distrustful of each other, even Hilltop and Alexandria bizarrely, over the whole um, Rick and the bridge thing. Then there's this inter-community fair orchestrated by Ezekiel, which takes place at the kingdom rather than Alexandria as it does in the comics. Otherwise, things mostly follow the original story up to the point where Alpha puts that dozen or so heads on spikes. The choices for who lost their head were completely different than in the comic. Rosita and Ezekiel were killed at this point originally, whereas the show decided to offload a number of show-only characters like Terra and Enid. Also Henry which is strange since there was more room for a Carl surrogate, but the show did its own thing when it came to incorporating Lydia into the group. It just gave her a series of mentor figures like Negan, Daryl, and Aaron. The kingdom falls, Ezekiel loses his purpose for a while, and Carol, still alive, runs off to the sea in Michonne's role from the comic. Negan's role is mostly the same as in the comic. He tries to offer advice, tries to volunteer, and then escapes and kills Alpha. In the comic, Dwight is a fairly prominent character around this point, but the character had moved over to Fear the Walking Dead, so most of his role is shifted over to Aaron as sort of like the general of the um, defense force, I guess. Oh, and then we had yet another major abrupt character departure, Denai Guerrera. Between her different Marvel projects, like I mentioned before, Guerrera is a major character in Black Panther, Her career just really took off, so they wrote her off the show after undertaking a vague, quote-unquote, search for Rick. Considering that the character never returns, it's a strange, muted exit for the main character of the show at this point. As I said, Negan kills Alpha. Then Beta, her lieutenant, leads the horde of zombies to destroy Alexandria, but 
The actual confrontation happens in a town somewhere else where the Alexandrians had holed up. Several do the Pied Piper thing and lead the horde over a cliff, just like in the comic, and somehow nobody of significance dies. Oh, and Maggie came back. But I do want to talk about how, at this point, all of the dramatic tension left the show, never to return. It became clear who the popular characters were, and the show seemed either uninterested or unwilling to kill any of them off. People became protected by plot armor, straight up. So, the last phase of the show involves Alexandria and the allied communities um, encountering the Commonwealth and how their different civilizations conflict on the basis of class dynamics. The first third of the final season is an interesting side story about Maggie and Daryl's group returning to Maggie's other community to kill some mercenaries and procure desperately needed supplies. It's this fun mini-arc that gives a lot of unexpected character development to Negan, Maggie, and Daryl. Well, mostly the first two. I don't think Daryl changes all that much. While this is going on, Eugene and company travel to the Commonwealth, encountering in the process the fantastic character princess along the way, and endure the grueling immigration process into the Commonwealth. Hornsby, a show-only character, is the main villain around this time, as he turns the desire of the Allied communities into an opportunity to bring the Commonwealth's boot down on their necks. It's all significantly less nuanced than in the comic, where there's never an overt conflict between Alexandria and Hilltop and the Commonwealth, but seeing as how this last arc was mainly about Rick versus Mercer versus the Miltons in the comic, they needed something, and I guess gunfights are easier than philosophical ones. There are a number of stupid character actions that seem designed to manufacture dramatic developments. Here's an example. Hornsby is jailed, orders walkers to be set loose, the walkers go on a tear. Eugene manages to prevent Milton's son, Sebastian, from killing Max, uh, Eugene's erstwhile girlfriend. But then Sebastian ends up being bitten by a walker and dies. Well, just the entire town stands around and watches it happen. The entire Commonwealth then goes from hating Sebastian, which they did like a second ago, uh, and then they go from that to accusing Eugene of murder. How dare you let Sebastian die, you murderer? And then Eugene confesses and is put on this, like, show trial, where because he makes an eloquent closing statement, it turns the town back against Milton and then foments an uprising. It all only makes sense if you don't think about it too closely. There are various other twists and turns, but none of it really matters. No one of significance dies for the rest of the show. But wait, I hear you saying, what about Rosita? What about Luke? I said what I said. No one of significance. In fact, now that we've come to it, let's talk about the finale. The Walking Dead ends on such a stupid note. The zombies swarm in, Milton and the haves retreat behind the gated section of the Commonwealth and leave the have-nots to die. Daryl and Mercer's group infiltrate the area and persuade the soldiers there to arrest Milton and save the citizenry. Together, everyone sets up a trap to lure the walkers in and blow them sky-high in a massive explosion. Then the show goes one year later, we see the Commonwealth at peace, and back in Alexandria, Daryl says his goodbyes and rides off into the world. Why? Because he's got a spinoff coming, that's why. And then we see a disconnected insert of Rick and Michonne monologuing from wherever they are to remind us that they, too, have a spinoff on the way. The end. It means nothing. Resolves nothing in a satisfying way. A confused whimper of an ending rather than a bang. 
but there are, of course, other Walking Dead shows. I've referred to it a couple times by this point, but the prequel show Fear the Walking Dead has by now had seven seasons and an eighth is on the way next spring. Plus, it's no longer a prequel, as around season four they did this, like, time jump to the present and added Morgan and Dwight to the cast. Fear is a good show, mostly. It has a great cast that's only gotten better over time, and depicting the outbreak of the zombie apocalypse from the beginning and showing a number of locations outside of Georgia, including L.A., Mexico, and the border, provides more context to the broader Walking Dead world. Sure, it was a slow start, and watching a new group of survivors rediscover the basics of how zombies work was retread territory, but it became its own thing. I'm behind on it by like a season or two, and look forward to catching up. So, some favorite moments from Fear, just to breeze through them. Uh, The initial days of the outbreak, and the military response. The journey through Mexico, the hotel, and the winnowing of the starting cast, the two timelines of season four, and seeing what the survivors turn into over the intervening years. The flight of a Phoenix plane rebuilding mission in season five. There's also this two-season spinoff called The World Beyond, about a group of teenage survivors 10 years after the apocalypse and how the world has changed for them by that point. Frankly, I haven't seen it, and it got canceled. So draw your own conclusions, I guess. I'm still going to watch it, but I can't really speak on it much more beyond that. But wait, there are tons of new series in the future. So leading up to the end of the final season of The Walking Dead, it was announced that not one, Not two, but at least three spinoff shows were on the way. The first is Dead City, about Negan and Maggie in New York. The dynamic between them was maybe the best element of the last season of The Walking Dead, so color me intrigued. There's also this Rick and Michonne limited series on the way, so I guess we'll learn where they've been all this time, and why they couldn't be bothered to fight their way back to be with their children in Alexandria. (laughs) I'm actually reasonably interested in this. Um, Their chemistry on screen before was always good, and since it's a limited series, they could actually craft a decent story with an ending and everything. The last announced spinoff, for now, is all about Daryl Dixon in France, biking around, doing the Lord's work, or whatever. Obviously, I'll watch it. It's Norman Reedus. So along with Game of Thrones, The Walking Dead defined dramatic storytelling for the last decade plus. I mentioned earlier that the stakes don't get much more dramatic or compelling than who lives and who dies, and by making things at least feel random, and like anyone could die at any time, the audience feels invested. Favorite characters might not be safe. When the latter seasons of The Walking Dead lost that, the show got way less interesting. I think the decline in viewership over the last several seasons bears this out. Aside from the spin-offs, I think The Walking Dead will leave a long shadow on Prestige TV. Prior to The Walking Dead, nobody had attempted a production like this. A horror series with an all-star cast, movie-quality makeup and set design. Clearly AMC wasn't sold 100% at the beginning, hence the limited episode orders and that drama with Frank Darabont. But damned if they didn't embrace their decision later on. I think for the network, the experience of producing The Walking Dead along with some other high-profile dramas like Breaking Bad turned the channel into a basic cable HBO to the point where it has its own streaming service and everything. Outside of the franchise, though, what does it mean for zombie fiction? So zombies are still big in video games. Hello, Resident Evil. I think there's another Zombieland movie in production, but 
For now, I feel like that late aughts, early 2010s wave of zombie uh, media is kind of past, so we're probably not going to see much zombie horror in film, TV, or books, comics, or otherwise. You see, with Romero gone, there just isn't anyone left to push the genre forward. There's not much left to say. In many respects, The Walking Dead is the apotheosis of the art form. I love The Walking Dead. I was always drawn to zombie movies and games, and I was on board with the project from early on. I I saw what Kirkman was attempting and the quality of the story and the art. They clearly got zombies, and how they were nothing more than a natural disaster backdrop to the human drama of how survivors react and how we treat each other. I collected and read every trade paperback collection of the comic, and when I heard about the AMC show, I was immediately excited. It did not disappoint. Though the show had its ups and downs over the decade-plus of its time on air, and honestly, name me a show of that length that doesn't, I maintain that most of it was good. Great, even. The casting, acting, makeup, set design was commendable, award-worthy. Its best moments hold up favorably against any comparison you might choose to make. The comic ended brilliantly. The show did not, but I'm still glad I saw it. And I am excited for those spin-offs. I don't know what can possibly top it, but these things always circle back around. One day, zombies will be fresh and interesting again. It's only a matter of time. And that's the show. Uh, Like the subject matter, this episode refuses to die. I feel like I've said everything I could think to say about The Walking Dead, and then I'm like, but what about the games? Uh, There are games. But I have to end it somewhere. I could have talked way more about fear, right? I could have. The problem with episodes like this, and most of the ones that I've been doing lately, is that I'm trying to get through way too much material for one person on one podcast. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. Recommend the show to a friend, make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel, and um, meet me back here for the next episode. Because in a month, Space Mummies from Planet X returns with a new episode on... Avatar, The Way of Water. It's not an 11-season show or a franchise with like 15 films, so maybe it will be slightly more manageable? Please? Anyway, have a wonderful holiday, everyone. I'll see you next time. (laughs) Thank you.